Welcome to Commune. This is Jeff Krasnow. Our mission is to spread the ideas and practices of the world's greatest teachers. We do that through online courses, a weekly newsletter, and this podcast. On the show, I excavate perennial spiritual questions like what is consciousness? What is the nature of reality? How do we live with purpose? Reality is infinite. We experience a narrow bandwidth of it unless we transcend our senses through meditation. We delve into practices and modalities that can heal trauma and help us thrive. Mastering the art and the science of forgiveness is necessary to move through life. A miracle is a shift in perception from fear to love. We explore the spiritual traditions that help us acknowledge that we are all connected by a power greater than us. We are all indeed individuals, yet we need to find collective and communal solutions. We build a sturdy bridge between personal wellness and societal well-being. It's only when you get people who are pursuing their dreams, living their truth, and feeling good that we can actually move the needle of society forward. To learn about our courses, our community, and everything we do, visit us at onecommune.com. Okay, today on the show, I speak with Dr. David Perlmutter. David is a board-certified neurologist and five-time New York Times bestselling author. He received his MD from the University of Miami School of Medicine, where he was awarded the Leonard G. Roundtree Research Award. David has published extensively in peer-reviewed scientific journals, including Archives of Neurology, Neurosurgery, and the Journal of Applied Nutrition, and he is a frequent lecturer at symposia sponsored by institutions such as the World Bank and IMF, Columbia University, Scripps Institute, New York University, and Harvard University. His books have been published in 32 languages and include the number one New York Times bestseller, Grain Brain. And today on the show, we discuss David's new book, Drop Acid, The Surprising New Science of Uric Acid. Okay, so a little background before we dive in. Our cells, mostly our liver cells, make a compound called uric acid that has been generally associated with gout and considered a waste product. But uric acid also signals our body to store fat and become insulin resistant. We know that excess adipose tissue, obesity, and high blood glucose levels are precursors to chronic diseases like Alzheimer's, heart disease, and diabetes. So the question is, why does our body endogenously make it? Well, Dr. Perlmutter and I explore the fascinating answer. We discuss the foods that trigger the production of uric acid. We talk about the prevalence of fructose in the standard American diet and its myriad detrimental impacts. And we discuss the relationship between obesity and dementia, and what is the right diet for curtailing uric acid production. Uh, David is simply a master at explaining the mechanisms of the body. And once we understand how the body's systems work, we have the agency to change our behaviors in a manner that promotes flourishing and well-being. 
So if you enjoy this conversation, please check out David's new book, Drop Acid. Without further delay, here's my conversation with Dr. David Perlmutter. What does the clinical data tell us about the relationship between uric acid and some of these chronic diseases like diabetes or coronary artery disease or Alzheimer's? Well, let me begin by saying that those problems that you talked about are the number one cause of death on planet Earth, according to the World Health Organization. Not some infectious agent, though that seems to be getting all the attention. And it, truthfully, the diseases that you mentioned, the chronic degenerative conditions, the coronary artery disease, cardiovascular disease in general, Alzheimer's, some forms of cancer, type 2 diabetes, are a choice. They are under our control. They directly relate to our lifestyle and relate to the relationship between our current lifestyle and what our DNA would expect. And what I mean by that is that our genome has evolved over an awful long period of time to keep us alive and to prepare us for times, for example, of food and water scarcity. So we have a very thrifty genome, if you will, that allows us to make uh, to store calories, store food, if you will, uh, and really create a scenario whereby we'll have a resource for water in our bodies should we face dehydration. In the context of the life that our ancestors lived in, I'm talking about more than 99.9% .9 of the time that we have walked this planet. The problem becomes that those mechanisms that want to do everything they can to keep us alive are now greeted with a different playing field, a playing field in which calories are abundant and specifically a very unique target or molecule that targets our metabolism is in abundance in the human diet, and that is the sugar fructose. So throughout our time in evolution on this planet, fructose was a signal that winter is coming. The fruit would ripen in the in the late summer, early fall, and that prepared us by stimulating something called uric acid. Consume fructose, that's sugar, and it is metabolized into something called uric acid. And it is uric acid that then tells your body, okay, folks, we're getting ready for winter. We're gonna make fat, store fat. We're gonna increase blood sugar to power the brain. Uh, we're gonna increase blood pressure as a hedge against dehydration. And you know, for almost our entire time on the planet, that was a good thing, mm -hmm. that becoming insulin resistant and raising our blood sugar was a good thing. So it's really, you know, when you talk to guests on your program about you know, the risk of having elevated blood sugar and having insulin resistance, what you know, how terrible that is, truly it is contextual as we look at historically. So what I'm describing then <clears throat> is an evolutionary environmental mismatch, whereby we are living today with truly a paleolithic genome that is geared to help us engage these mechanisms for our survival, but these mechanisms are killing us. These are the mechanisms that are causing 
this incredible metabolic mayhem that is we're seeing globally. We, you know, we used to talk about the standard American diet. Then we began saying, well, most Western countries are, are eating like that. So it became the Western diet. This is the global diet, a highly processed uh, diet that's high in refined carbohydrates with lots of added sweetener. Uh, and this is the diet that is telling your body and my body to prepare for winter. And mm. this is the big picture underlying all that we are seeing. Uh, you know, we live in a, in America here where a third of adults is obese, and yeah. that number is going to be 50% in eight years, in, in the year 2030. You know, where 10% of children between the ages of 12 years and 18 years have been diagnosed with hypertension. So, you know, we're, we're just in a bad way as it relates to our metabolism. And we've now identified that a very important uh, mechanism that signals our body that the winter is coming is this uric acid that, you know, in my training, as you well pointed out, it was gout. Uh, you know, high uric acid means gout, and otherwise we really don't care about it. Well, beginning uh, uh, in earnest about 20 years ago, researchers around the world uh, began to uh, explore this relationship of elevated uric acid with various metabolic conditions, raising blood pressure, raising blood sugar, becoming insulin resistant, uh, and things that we've talked about. And to the extent that back in uh, 2009, in uh, a collaborative study from both Turkey and Japan uh, was published, uh, actually it was 2016, entitled Uric Acid in the Metabolic Syndrome from Innocent Bystander mm -hmm. to Central Player. Meaning this isn't just that uric acid happens to be elevated in overweight and obesity and hypertension and diabetes. It's causally related. And that's been proven now through deep research that have, that manipulates uh, uric acid and shows that higher levels are create these problems in laboratory animals and in humans. And that by blocking uric acid production, there is a, a diminution of the various components of the metabolic syndrome. So this is not your grandfather's uric acid anymore. Yeah, it's related to gout, but you know, gout isn't that prevalent. Well, yeah, there are 9 million gout patients in America who are generally much more likely to be obese and hypertension and cardiovascular disease and have increased risk for Alzheimer's, I might add. But having said that, um, in our world of metabolic mayhem, we have a new tool in the toolbox and it's very, very exciting because it's not esoteric. We can measure it at home and we can fix it at home. And that is, I think, the core message then of Drop Acid is, hey, you didn't know about this before. That's why you read books. And here is a brand new tool for your toolbox. Measure your uric acid and here are the tools to bring it down. Great. There's so much there, David. And I, I want to explore in our conversation, what are these optimal ranges and how do we test? And is our uh, uric acid levels, uh, a reading or a metric that shows up on a normal blood panel. But, but before we get there, there's so many threads I'd like to pull on from, from what you okay. just said, um, because I, I did look at that particular paper that you're referring to, and I know that you've done um, some extensive conversing with a doctor, I believe Richard Johnson, is that his name? Talked to him yesterday, yes. Okay. So when I looked at that paper, um, one thing that I found fascinating that you just echoed was this idea that when the body produces something, 
endogenously, there is generally a reason for it. <laughs> um, so, and that's a general comment, but that led me to the question, you know, was there some kind of uh, evolutionary adaptive advantage um, with associated with this endogenous production of uric acid? At one point um, in our hominid past, um, and I think this is what you point out, what was once an adaptive advantage, a signal to the body to store fat in the anticipation of scarcity, has now become a disadvantage because there's no scarcity. Um, in some ways, our culture has outpaced our evolution. Is that a fair understanding? It is. And, and matter of fact, I, I delineated that in uh, Richard Johnson's new book called Why Nature Wants Us to Be Fat. I, I wrote the forward to his book and just and really encapsulated what you just said. And, you know, the truth is that my interest in this evolutionary environmental mismatch, the notion that we're living with outdated machinery. Uh, I, I've had an interest in this uh, for a long time and wrote my first article about it uh, half a century ago in um, published it in the Miami Herald when I was 16, that we are living with outdated machinery, that our speed hmm. of evolution is not anywhere uh, adequate as it relates to the speed of the, of the other side of the equation, which is the environment. So suddenly the environment has turned the tables on this Paleolithic genome, and and as it relates to uric acid, long before Paleolithic times. I mean, this dates back fourteen to seventeen million years ago to our primate ancestors during a time when the world cooled over a million years, and uh, there was this selection pressure. It wasn't huge, but those who had a a small advantage by virtue of being able to make and store fat. Uh, that is a small advantage, but play that out over a million years. And it is a selection pressure to allow those to procreate, uh, pass on their genetic nuances uh, to next generations versus uh, those who did not have those genetic nuances. And hence, we, to this day, have a genetic loss of the genes that make an enzyme that would have otherwise broken down uric acid and as such, we don't have that enzyme and our uric acid levels are four to five times higher that, uh, than that of uh, other mammals. So it was always an advantage. And I think it's really valuable to look at these mechanisms through that lens because um, there had to be an advantage. You know, we often talk about, this is a little bit divergent, but we often talk about the APOE4 allele as it relates to Alzheimer's disease. It's not an Alzheimer's gene, but it's certainly an Alzheimer's predisposition. If you have one of them, you increase your risk by fivefold. If you have two, you increase your risk by 12-fold. That's dramatic. Well, why would that genetic issue persevere in our environment, right? Why, if, if it's so bad for us, why would we have it? And it turns out when you think it through that it does increase inflammation a little bit in the body. And that's one of the cornerstones of the genesis of Alzheimer's in terms of the brain. But inflammation is not always a bad thing. Inflammation can be life-saving if you have a bacterial or a parasitic infection, uh, allowing your body to wall it off and do all the things that inflammation does. So we always have to take a step back now. And I think that's been a great lesson uh, for me in the past few years is to take a step back and look at these things that we think are so detrimental and ask ourselves, well, could there ever have been an advantage? Could we say that insulin resistance and higher blood sugar is a good thing? Yes, we can. Uh, mm -hmm. In the context of 
having higher blood sugar to power the brain, our really unique uh, high card in our hands that could allow us not to starve, to allow us to offset starvation and predation. So we're not somebody else's next meal because we have a, we're clever and we can figure things out. Uh, it gets even deeper than that when we look at advantages of fructose metabolism in terms of making us more impulsive and higher levels of risk taking. These days, that's not a good thing. I mean, that may underlie things like uh, ADHD, for example. Um, but in the day, the higher level of risk taking might have been what allowed you to find food when the more conservative individual didn't want to take chances, might not. So mm. it's, it's really quite valuable to take ourselves uh, out of the current uh, viewpoint and be a little bit more global chronologically and, and, uh, and temporally uh, and, and ask that question. That's fascinating. What was useful for us at one juncture um, may have less utility today, particularly in this perfect storm. So I think as you just articulately uh, outlined, through environmental pressure, nature selected against uh, uricase. Um, and that uh, the amount of uricase over time has been attenuated. At the same time, we have this standard American diet, which has been completely efflorescent in the world. And so what you have is this, well, imperfect storm, perhaps is a better term for it, where we don't have the mechanism to uh, prevent the synthesis of uric acid, but at the same time, there's seemingly more and more fructose and, and processed foods on our grocery shelves than ever before. Can you elaborate a, a little bit on that on sure. that elixir? So the the notion that fructose uh, basically is preparing us for hibernation. I mean, not just winter, but actual hibernation. You know, that's what bears do. They eat tons of fruit, not tons, but, you know, uh, 20,000 calories worth of, of fruit or sugar calories a day in preparation for hibernation. Um, and, you know, this isn't unique to hibernating animals. Uh, why, you know, the, the hummingbird is uh, one of the fattest animals around. The hummingbird, 40% of its body weight at times can be fat when it's preparing for this epic voyage that it takes is, you know, thousands of miles and it makes, uh, it makes body fat. What do you put in your backyard if you want hummingbirds? You put a bird feeder full of sucrose, half glucose, mm -hmm. half, half fructose. So uh, interestingly that they store fat, not just as a source of calories, but as a source of water. When we burn fat for fuel, we make carbon dioxide and H2O, metabolic water. And that helps with these animals. I mean, look at the camel crossing the desert. What's the most obvious feature? The hump. What's the hump? It's fat. It's a resource, yes, for calories, but it's also a resource to create metabolic water. Whales don't find freshwater springs, they make metabolic water from fat. And so it is that when our bodies sense dehydration, which is really very important, we'll talk about what that means in a moment. When our bodies sense dehydration, we actually make our own fructose in our bodies even beyond what we would be eating. We activate what's called the polyol pathway, that'll be on the quiz, where we yeah. convert our own blood sugar into fructose to make fat because fat can become water. 
when our bodies sense dehydration. Now, wow. one of the major ways our bodies sense dehydration is that when we become dehydrated, our serum or blood sodium salt level goes up, sodium level goes up. That triggers this production of fructose to make fat and also another enzyme to preserve, uh, to reduce water loss in the kidney. So how, uh, yeah, when you're dehydrated, your sodium goes up, but it also goes up when you eat that bag of pretzels watching the playoffs that's covered with salt. As soon as you eat that salty food, your blood sodium level goes up, your body thinks that you're dehydrated, bingo, you start making fat. So eating dietary salt is associated with diabetes, it's associated with weight gain, and certainly associated with hypertension. But now we look at it through this new lens, this mm -hmm. lens of it being a survival mechanism that's playing upon our bodies thinking they're becoming dehydrated. So we've known this relationship between serum, so between salt consumption and diabetes and obesity, et cetera, for a long, long time. But the cool part of it is now we know how it happens. So, you know, we had a lot of this puzzle worked out. We certainly had the corners and the borders, but there's always been that one piece where you have part of the, of the farmhouse roofing, you couldn't find it. Now all of a sudden all these pieces are being added and so exciting and rewarding because not only does it help you understand these mechanisms, which I think many of us wanna understand, but it provides us tools. It provides us tools that can target this epidemic of diabetes and obesity and all the downstream issues, as you mentioned, the Alzheimer's, the coronary artery disease, cancers of, of various types, all of these uh, issues that have dysfunctional metabolism underpinning them. Uh, so what do we tell people then? Okay, if you want to sit and watch the playoffs and uh, eat a you know, bag of pretzels covered with salt, bad idea because of the carbs and the salt anyway. But if you're gonna do it, you have to do it, then drink a glass of water. That will dilute down the sodium and won't fire up that mechanism to make this signal happen in your body and in your brain, I might add, of fructose that will uh, inhibit the, the chemicals that stimulate, that tell you not to eat anymore, leptin. Uh, mm -hmm. When you eat fructose it, or there's fructose produced in your body, it inhibits the functionality of leptin, which is normally the push away from the table hormone. Now you're eating more and you're going to gain even more weight and make worse decisions and continue to eat the salty pretzels. And, you know, it's not like we don't want to do, everybody has a sweet tooth. We're all going to want to eat sugar and we have a real desire to eat salt. Uh, but it's really about making better decisions. It's why I try to write the books that I do, just to give tools. It's there, and the hope is that people will act on uh, on these recommendations. And to be fair, these recommendations may very well change 10 years from now when you and I get together for another podcast. Who knows? But my hope is that people are open to that and and you know welcome that, the fact that we change based upon what the science is revealing. Yeah, I think that's a great lesson in general. Uh, uh, prescient for this moment is that science changes based around the ground conditions uh, and new data that emerges. So uh, that, that's when science is functioning actually at its best. Um, so people can be impatient with uh, science that seems to be relating uh, different me messages or uh, mercurial messaging and as a as you know our public health agencies obviously need to really focus on messaging well but people also at the same time need to understand 
that when science is doing its job and leveraging its method, the uh, the results change. And um, but uh, I, I want to ask you something outside of your uh, expertise: Is everyone that claims not to have a sweet tooth a liar? <laughs> <laughs> uh, that came with the hard drive. That was not an app that got loaded in. So uh, the sweet tooth that we have is really part of the operating system, and yeah. as a very very powerful. Um, survival mechanism. So that desire, that that sense of euphoria that comes or would have come to our ancestors with that one moment of of the year of eating sweet, um, you know, we don't really feel as euphoric about it these days because we really temper it because we're eating. You know, we're, we're doing this twenty four seven, so it becomes less right. of a of a novelty. But I, I'm I don't that word liar is uh, I. I, have, <laughs> uh, you know, I I can disagree with people, but you know they they may believe it. Uh, people believe all yeah. kinds of things, especially these days. And I yeah. think you know that's part of you know this cognitive empathy is to listen to what they are saying or have to say or their perspective and try it on. We don't do yeah. that anymore. It's really sad. We've lost this agora inter interaction whereby ideas are shared and and novel ideas can then be created de novo based upon uh, disparate inputs. Um, mm. we are losing that and people are locking in, losing this cognitive empathy. And, uh, it's unfortunate because we've made huge progress by being humans who've shared ideas, uh, until recently. And, you know, I, I believe that one of the reasons that we are no longer able as, as able to engage that part of empathy is because we're becoming less and less able to access that part of the brain, the prefrontal cortex instead locking ourselves into more primitive impulsivity in our thinking and self-centeredness in our thinking emanating from the amygdala and that disconnection we described in brainwash uh, is is really worsened by the process of inflammation again yeah. relating back to our diets and certainly relating to elevation of uric acid who knew yeah well i couldn't agree with you more david um on the need to Reinstantiate healthy public discourse. I've often equated ideas to genes that, in a, in the presence of a multiplicity of of genes or ideas uh, that can be shared freely, that nature will select for the best ones. But um, you know, in the absence of a multiplicity of ideas and a real ideas marketplace, uh, it becomes increasingly difficult to cohere around an intersubjective understanding of the truth based on the best ideas. Um, but I want to, uh, if you would indulge us a little, I suppose, endocrinology 101 or biology 101 here is you've talked a little bit about how, um, the, how uric acid is a signal for insulin resistance. Um, and I wonder if you could unpack insulin resistance a little bit, talk about what is the role of, in, uh, of insulin, how our bodies use insulin to move glucose into the cell, and, and when that system breaks down, what happens? Sure. Well, let me begin by, as a neurologist, before we get to the endocrinology of this, uh, recognize that 
Insulin is a trophic hormone for the brain, meaning a nurturing, loving hormone for brain cells that beyond its role in, in allowing glucose to enter cells and be utilized for fuel or creation of glycogen, that it's a trophic. You want to grow some brain cells in a laboratory Petri dish, you sprinkle them with insulin. And I think, you know, we tend to pigeonhole things uh, based upon our, our first uh, exposure or their names. For example, you know, testosterone, the male tough hormone. Well, women's bodies have testosterone, men's, men's bodies have estrogen, you know, so that when we pigeonhole these things, it's a disservice to us, I think, and keep in our efforts to remain open-minded. So the whole notion of insulin as it relates to the brain has certainly been fascinating to me uh, as our bodies become resistant to its function, meaning that uh, after a time, the availability of insulin to do its job, to be that trophic hormone for brain cells, to allow certain areas of the brain to utilize blood sugar or glucose as a fuel. And as a matter of fact, there are parts of the brain that do depend upon insulin to allow that to happen. But also certainly peripherally in the liver and in the muscles, the use of uh, insulin or letting it do its thing to help keep our blood sugars normalized, lower our blood sugar after our blood sugars elevate following a carbohydrate, simple carbohydrate rich meal as an example. Uh, so that said, this notion that our cells and our bodies can become resistant to insulin would be looked upon these days as a big problem because what happens after a while, uh, as we stop answering the door when insulin is knocking and saying, I've got a package for you here, it's glucose, you need to bring it in the house. When we stop answering the door, then the the blood insulin, uh, blood uh, glucose level goes higher and higher. That's a bad thing. Let me, let me digress here for just a moment because looking at blood sugar measurements is really valuable. Uh, you can use a continuous glucose monitor. I'm actually wearing one right now. I could test my blood sugar while we're talking. Uh, it's great to know what your blood sugar is at any given moment. <clears throat> but getting back to our role of insulin, if insulin's working overtime or the pancreas is working overtime and cranking out a lot of insulin, it could still give you a pretty normal blood sugar. So you're not really seeing where you are in this whole bigger picture of glucose and insulin interaction by just looking at your glucose. You should know your insulin level because again, your pancreas could be working uh, late hours to really keep your blood sugar where it belongs and you're not gonna know. So understanding where you are on the insulin resistance scale is actually very valuable because it tells you where you are on the whole continuum in terms of getting to that place where your cells finally say, I can't take it anymore. This insulin level is so high, I am done. Uh, so then we become insulin resistant and then it stops working. Blood sugar then starts to rise. And that is associated with all of the issues that we're all familiar with, the increased risk of the various degenerative metabolic problems that we've talked about. But now that we understand that uric acid is involved here, it really uh, opens us up to developing tools uh, to target the insulin resistance, to keep it from even happening in the first place, which is my goal, uh, and but through a different lens. We didn't know this about uric acid, that when uric acid is elevated, it compromises the function of a chemical, for example, called nitric oxide. Yes, mm. we need nitric oxide so our blood vessels will open up and we'll get blood supply to our organs. But uric acid inhibits that. It's why 
Higher levels of uric acid, for example, are associated with erectile dysfunction. Erectile function is blood vessels that open up. Drugs mm. like uh, Viagra work by by working on nitric oxide so that nitric oxide can do its job, open the blood vessel and allow blood to flow, in this case, to the penis. But it also has a role to play in how the heart works and how the brain works. In fact, uh, a, a recent study that was published three weeks ago demonstrated that men who take Viagra have a dramatic reduced risk of Alzheimer's, improving blood supply to the brain and also affecting the production of these uh, damaging proteins. Let's get mm -hmm. back to our story. The other thing that nitric oxide is important for is how insulin does its job. Nitric oxide is needed for two things, insulin getting out of the blood vessel and insulin getting into the cell or working uh, at the level of the cell to allow it to bring the glucose in. We inhibit that with higher levels of uric acid as a survival mechanism originally in an attempt to create insulin resistance to allow the brain to be powered. These days, you know, that would raise our blood sugar and we sure as heck don't want to do that. We want to keep our blood sugars under control, not in the normal range, but in the optimal range. And that's you know, certainly a discussion uh, that we could have. So this insinuates then uric acid into this flow chart, if you will, of, of diet and dietary choices uh, and ultimately control over our blood sugar as uh, leveraged by the sensitivity or lack thereof uh, of insulin. I'm glad you brought up nitric oxide. I just recently read a book by James Nestor about the breath. Uh, and he specifically talks about nostril breathing. I know this is divergent slightly, but uh, not so breathing, through, breathing uh, through your nose and, and not through your mouth, uh, because you, when you nostril breathe, you um, propel the production of, nit of nitric oxide, as you said, which is a, is a vasodilator. Um, and so I have been working on that myself of, of just becoming a nostril breather. And I can already uh, uh, sense uh, the benefits of that. The other thing it's doing is you are consciously uh, working to breathe through your nose as we would do, for example, during meditation. Right. So it's really bringing to you um, a focus, a presence uh, of, in this case, an activity. And as such, uh, you're gaining a lot of peripheral benefits from that with lowering of your cortisol, increasing activity of your prefrontal cortex, uh, you know, allowing you to keep the adult in the room and make better decisions. So uh, interestingly, uh, as it relates to breathing, I can bring it right back to our, the, our topic of the day. <laughs> One of the most powerful influences for the production of fructose in your body. And we haven't even had to talk about dietary fructose very, yeah, very we'll much. Get as, yeah, we'll sure. get there, that's for sure. <laughs> but we produce this fructose within our bodies as a survival mechanism, creating higher levels of blood pressure, blood uh, glucose, making more, making more body fat. We do it when we're hypoxic or when our blood oxygenation levels are low. And, you know, right away, I think uh, podcast viewers are going to think, well, you know, I don't really do that. I'm not climbing K2 uh, this past week. Uh, but sleep apnea is very common. 
And many people drop their oxygen saturation, their blood oxygen saturation during sleep, especially people who have excess body fat. And what is that doing? It's immediately ramping up this alarm mechanism in your body to make more body fat, which ultimately makes sleep apnea even worse. So it becomes a vicious cycle. So, you know, there are multiple points along that continuum that can be targeted to bring things under control. Yes, we want to get that uric acid level down, but maybe this person needs a CPAP or another procedure, who knows what. But the point is that this new knowledge is really, uh, and I get excited about it because I'm all for having more tools in the toolbox. And this is going to be a big one. Uh, you know, there are a lot of things that are de rigueur these days, uh, you know, whether it's time restricted uh, eating, uh, you know, zone two exercise, whatever it may be. Uh, but now the uric acid story is uh, being told. And we recognize that this has been research going on, as mentioned, for two decades. Truthfully, the first book on uric acid, apart from gout, was just published in 1898. Uh, so, uh, you know, this is a book that looked at uh, elevation by Dr. Alexander Haig, elevation of uric, uric acid related to various issues, not necessarily just gout. So it's been out there for quite some time. But you know, it was so easy to put uric acid in the gout chapter and leave it at that. But you know, we have to be open-minded and move forward. People yes, tend to be tend to be down on what they're not up on, and you know that's the mission: is bringing people along and letting them become up on this topic. Well, you've been at the forefront of of that on so many topics, and uh, I assume we shouldn't confuse Alexander Haig with the Secretary of State Alexander Haig that came around much later. <laughs> that's <laughs> um, correct. Yeah. Um, well, you brought something up uh, interesting around time-restricted eating or calorie restriction or fasting. Um, and honestly, I, I'm walking into this question uh, without any expectation because I don't know the answer. Okay, um, good. Uh, would fasting actually induce an escalation in uric acid levels? It does. And actually, that's a good thing because, you know, fasting is something that we do intermittently, hence the term. Uh, and it, it's obviously something we can't continue. Uh, fasting will generally bump up uric acid a bit during the fasting period. With the refeeding period, then uric acid is back to baseline or actually slightly improved. So uh, as we, I'm sure you have um, on your podcast many times talked about the benefits of time-restricted eating or intermittent fasting, uh, that uh, there are plenty of metabolic benefits. We can couple that uh, to the whole notion of uric acid and see those uh, feeding uh, approaches through the lens of how that might affect a uric acid and how that might be additive. Uh, so, you know, I'm all in. In fact, we talk about, we have a whole chapter in the book dedicated to time-restricted eating because of the metabolic advantages that that offers. Yeah. And it just starts, these things, once you understand the mechanisms of a lot of the things that we're talking about, these different variables start to make sense because uric acid is there to, um, to create a signal to store additional adipose tissue um, for energy. And if you're in a calorie restricted state, well, of course, you know, there, there might be a relationship there where your body says, oh, okay, well, 
I'm in a state of scarcity or seeming scarcity. Um, so what I need to do right now is, um, is convert triglycerides into, into adipose tissue for future use. So I'm not right. sure that's what because the mechanism what happens, is, but yeah. Your body is, uh, is suddenly saying, whoa, what happened? No food. Uh, we've got right. some, you know, backup mechanisms here that are geared at, at our survival. And it's not only the genesis of fat, but it's the reduction of metabol metabolic rate so mm. that this uric acid is locking fat away, uh, keeping it sacred, uh, but it's also compromising metabolism. It's also reducing uh, the way the mitochondria are burning energy, so it's turning that down. So, um, and also here we are starving. What do we? I, I need to find some food, and you know, there's an animal over there looking at me like I'm going to be its next meal. I need to figure something out. So, fortunately, this triggers what we talked about before, this insulin resistance such that, uh, and what is called gluconeogenesis, the creation of glucose uh, in the liver to actually power the brain so I can get out of this conundrum that I'm in and figure out a plan and I'll survive. So it's a great mechanism when looked at through that, the lens of how would fasting, which is obviously one would assume that our Paleolithic ancestors, something that they would have uh, not chosen, but they certainly would have engaged in that when food was scarce for whatever reason. I can't imagine, you know, that three meals a day would be, uh, you know, uh, carved into their psyche. They're tracking a wildebeest or something and suddenly, oh no, it's <laughs> lunchtime. We're taking a break. You know, I, I just don't, I, I guess the three meals a day thing came along uh, as, you know, when we, in the industrialized era to give people a chance to have a break. But, you know, the reality is we can do quite well on one meal a day for that matter or two. And uh, the notion of time-restricted time restricted e eating uh, is, is something that ultimately I think uh, has great value. Dr. Sachin Panda has made that very clear in terms of our metabolic uh, risk versus metabolic health. Mm. I have read that uric acid can also function as an antioxidant, essentially be able to deliver electrons to repair damaged cells. Um, is there truth to that? And I'm sure- It's actually very I, interesting yeah. because um, it acts as a pro-oxidant intracellularly and it may have some antioxidant activity uh, out, outside of the cell, in other words, in the blood. Uh, mm -hmm. It's not significant. There's really no clinical evidence that that's playing an important role. Um, you know, there was some discussion years ago that somehow it would be protective of the brain, for example, in Parkinson's. And I, I have to admit that years ago, uh, when that data first came out, and it was just looking at uric acid levels in Parkinson's patients, uh, and they were lower, uh, and there was a notion that perhaps if we could increase their uric acid of all things, it might be beneficial. And I actually did do that for a period of time. I placed uh, Parkinson's patients on inosine, which is a purine type uh, uh, chemical and would raise their uric acid levels, not to the level that they would get gout. Uh, and I thought perhaps that it was uh, appropriate, but as fate would have it about four months ago in the Journal of the American Medical Association, there was a study that came out that indicated that there was no change in, uh, no improvement in their, what's called unified Parkinson's disease rating scale, but a scale that is used to look at Parkinson's patients in terms of their functionality. 
So I, I just think that while there is some evidence for that, uh, I think what goes on intracellularly is really where it's at and far more important. And then these other functional things that we're seeing with uric acid, and more importantly, the interventional trials that demonstrate in laboratory animals and in humans, what happens when uric acid is lower in terms of blood pressure improvement, in terms of uh, weight gain or not weight gain versus others who are mm -hmm. consuming the same amount of food, but whose uric acid levels have not been manipulated. So it's a very um, exciting uh, time to look at those uh, those statistics. When we look at you know the various studies, for example, for me that are really fascinating, uh, one uh, study that was done on 1,600 Japanese uh, individuals followed them for 12 years. And at the very beginning of the study, they did one very incredible test. They measured their uric acid levels, period. <laughs> but what they did do is over the 12 years, every two years on the, this group of individuals, they would measure their neurocognitive function. In other words, they would try to determine how the brain is working. What they found after 12 years was fascinating. They found that risk of developing dementia in the group with the original highest level of uric acid was increased by 80%. Risk of full-blown Alzheimer's was increased 55%. And risk of having what's called mixed or vascular dementia was actually increased 166% in the group having the highest level of uric acid. Hmm. As we understand the risk for Alzheimer's from elevated blood sugar, risk for Alzheimer's in obesity, risk for Alzheimer's as plotted against inflammatory markers, it all makes sense. Mm. And so controlling uric acid in, in my specialty, in neurology, becomes yet another very, very important tool, especially in light of the fact that we do not have any pharmaceutical intervention whatsoever of any merit as it relates to treating Alzheimer's disease. We all saw you know, what happened in February of 2021 with the development of a new wonderful Alzheimer's drug that is basically abandoned now, not only because it doesn't work, but the side effect profile is very, very worrisome indeed. So it's really time we talk about uh, an Alzheimer's prevention program that we institute much, much earlier before we're beginning to forget our grandchildren's names and Wi-Fi codes. It, you know, we really have to understand that the seeds are sown 20, 30 years ahead of time in terms of which brain is going to degenerate with time. Uh, and similarly, it relates to uh, developing insulin resistance and even coronary artery disease. People talk about having a heart attack. It's not like you're walking down the street and you turn a corner and you're suddenly attacked by this thing de novo. You know, this is right. something that's been building for decades. And uh, we really need to, you know, add uric acid and it's going to be in the suite of things of metabolic markers like blood pressure bmi uh blood sugar insulin sensitivity and all that i am moving forward i'm watching it happen already and you know the idea that you can check your own blood uric acid i have my uric acid monitor right here and i, I checked it yesterday and that's that's a good number 4.7 i don't know if you can see that but the idea yeah. that you can check it at home just like you can check your blood sugar or um, you know, where a, a CGM continuous glucose monitor. I think it's really ultimately empowering. And that I, is great. That's the, that's the name of the game. And this is what I think your work has been about for as long as I've been aware of you is, is providing agency 
for people. And, uh, you know, there's so many reasons to be optimistic around these new emerging fields of study, like the microbiome and epigenetics and neuroplasticity, that we can change and adapt in accordance to our environment and behavior, that, uh, that, our, that our fate is not determined by our genetics. Um, Use a very important, very good word there, and that is the the agency part of your discussion, which uh, really resonates with me. That's what you know my mission's all about, because we are kind of convinced to offload that agency to the experts, and mm-hmm. the experts would say that you know, for example, last year there was a great editorial in the Journal of the American Medical Association that addressed this idea that people are starting to want to have these continuous glucose monitors who are not diabetic. And the editorial was really negative towards that. I mean, why should a person want to know their blood sugar? My goodness, they're going to become neurotic about it. No, uh, they their proposition was that it should be reserved only for people who have diabetes. Well, I don't want to be a diabetic. I don't want to get diabetes. And the best way that I can not become a diabetic is to control my blood sugar. The best way I can control it is to know what in the heck it is right now and how it, how it changed based upon what I ate today. And I do that based on wearing this monitor. Uh, and it is the, the tool of agency, to use your, your word. And that's really where we're going. It's this notion of having these you know, biometric tools that are user-friendly, that uh, let you regain an understanding of your unique physiology, what works Mm. and doesn't work for you. And that is this whole notion of personalized medicine that is amplified uh, by the the very agency that is the empowerment part of that scenario. Yeah. Yeah. I talk about this with my wife all the time of the challenges of being able to deliver personalized medicine at scale. And because I completely agree with you, this is all about empowerment. We have these tools. I'm one of those people that is not diabetic or pre-diabetic, but very, very interested in my glucose levels, uh, you know, day to day and very curious about what kind of activities, you know, might um, elicit a spike. You know, am I watching Netflix too late at night? You know, sometimes people say, well, you know, that can elicit a spike. Well, now I can see, you know, and, and I can adjust, um, you know, my behavior appropriately. But, you know, one thing that you said, um, that really landed with me, um, just a moment ago was this notion that a heart attack is somehow conflated with something that's just happened spontaneously and serendipitously that there are no um there are no preconditions you know for for that and you know i I wonder if you could uh, and again this may be a little bit of cardiology 101 but what are some of the markers or indicators that people can look for you know before their um you know, dealing with advanced uh, atherosclerosis or coronary artery disease, et cetera? Well, mechanistically, it's really important to focus on the issue of inflammation. So, you know, ultimately what's going on within that coronary artery that's narrowing it is an immune response. And when you, when you look in the, under the microscope at a section of a damaged or an atherosclerotic coronary artery, it's not 
what you were led to believe. It's not that the, the cholesterol in your blood is clogging the artery and you need some Drano or something. What you're seeing is a bunch of white blood cells, an immune response, an inflammatory reaction. Uh, ultimately, uh, there are multiple things that induce that. Uh, one of them is the oxidation, the oxidative damage brought on by the action of free radicals of the actual LDL or so-called bad cholesterol. Uh, but it's it's an immune and inflammatory response, and it takes us right back to uh, this notion of doing everything we can to rein in that mechanism of inflammation, keeping your blood sugar where it needs to be. High blood sugar glycates or bonds to our proteins, and the immune system doesn't like that, and it sets out these chemicals, these cytokine chemicals uh, that are the, the the messengers, if you will, the mediators of inflammation. I think people are becoming familiar with this term cytokines, the inflammatory markers, because of the cytokine storm that is this overwhelming inflammation, the body is basically on fire. That's where the word inflammation comes from, inflammare, uh, during COVID, during bad experiences with COVID, the cytokine storm. But at the same time, I think we need to consider a cytokine drizzle, meaning not a huge level of elevation of these chemicals, but it's persistent. You know, it's not like a huge, massive flood cut the Grand Canyon. No, it was the Colorado River at low level over a long period of time. And so it is uh, with the development of coronary artery disease. It's this low level, slightly increased a cytokine drizzle over time that ultimately manifests as these things that we would uh, otherwise believe happened de novo and suddenly uh, I was walking down the street, perfect health, next to you know, bingo, I had this, you know, you clutch your your chest and down you go. Doesn't work that way. As, as it is with Alzheimer's, as it is with diabetes, these are analog, they're not digital. They happen mm. uh, in gradations over time. There's very little in medicine that's digital. You either are or are not pregnant, but beyond that, everything else, or aside from trauma, is pretty much happening uh, over time, uh, you know, especially by definition, chronic, the chronic degenerative condition. So our mission, one of the missions, is to rein in inflammation, is to create dietary recommendations that reduce inflammation. One of the most powerful instigators that we know of is uric acid. Uric acid dramatically enhances the production of inflammation at multiple levels. It does mm -hmm. so at the in the gut by increasing gut permeability. It does so in the gut by favoring the, the overgrowth of more pro-inflammatory bacterial species. Uh, it does so by increasing the change in our proteins, glycating them, multiple areas that, that it does so as a survival mechanism once again to help us combat those dreaded infections and the parasites. But we need everything, uh, all hands on deck as it relates to inflammation these days. Interesting study was recently published looking at uh, 1,200 individuals admitted to hospital with COVID mm -hmm. and did a, a test at the beginning of their admission of their uric acid level. And what they found was that risk for death was increased twofold if you had a high uric acid level, you, risk for ICU admission or or ventilator being intubated, being on a ventilator, also increased two to threefold if mm. your uric acid level was elevated. Again, this relationship to two things, metabolic illness, which we know portends for a worse outcome, 
And also increased production of these cytokines, this effect on the immune system whereby the body just gets lit up. So, um, you know, this is a, it across so many platforms then, uh, we can leverage controlling uric acid to really reap benefit, you know, and uh, every day uh, as I explore this more deeply, uh, the playing field becomes bigger and bigger. And I think that's really good. Yeah. I, I was unaware that uric acid had such a detrimental impact in the gut um, and, and contributed to dysbiosis or intestinal permeability, which obviously um, is highly associated or causal with, with chronic inflammation as, as toxins um, pass through those tight junctions in the epithelial wall as that integrity begins that, to degrade. That's right. so, yeah. As a matter of fact, um, what is called fecal microbial transplant, it's not pleasant sounding, but the transplantation yeah. of the fecal material from a healthy individual into the colon of somebody with gout <laughs> has led to a dramatic reduction in gout attacks. So that again, wow. I think <clears throat> it really, I think showcases this relationship of uric acid to health of the gut and vice versa. And if someone wa it really wants to, I suppose, water the roots instead of just watering the leaves and pay attention to the underlying causes, for example, of heart disease, which is this chronic inflammation, um, is, is looking at your C-reactive protein the best marker? Or what would you suggest for someone who really wants to get, you know, wants to get a real sense of kind of how much inflammation is, is currently within their system. I think probably one of the best markers is a very sophisticated tool called a tape measure. And you put that tape measure around <laughs> your belly yeah. and you're laughing. That is a powerful, powerful surrogate marker for the level mm. of inflammation in your body. Very straightforward, very simple. Yes, highly sensitive C-reactive protein is an inflammatory marker. We can look at whatever, C-reactive uh, protein or tumor necrosis factor alpha or interleukin-1 beta, interleukin-6, uh, uh, interleukin-10. Uh, there are various markers that we can look at. Von Willebrand factor, fibrinogen level, white blood cell count, etc. But um, if you want to know right now, tonight, get a tape measure and measure the, uh, the, you know, the size of your belly. It's a, it's a powerful indicator. Your blood sugar is another surrogate marker. A very powerful surrogate marker is the A1C. There's a direct correlation of this because that is a glycated protein. As we talked about earlier, that's a glucose bonded protein. The more glucose in the blood, the more it binds to this protein, in this case, the protein is hemoglobin, and that's mm -hmm. the marker. The higher that is, the higher there is a level of inflammation, and it dramatically correlates with Alzheimer's risk, as a matter of fact, even at levels that your doctors may tell you is normal at 5.8 and 5.9. That's not, maybe that's considered normal by some, but it's not what I would want to call optimal, and that's what our, that's our goal. It's getting back to uric acid, also a powerful uh, indicator of inflammation. Your grandfather's uric acid level normal was seven, and seven uh, milligrams per deciliter uh, is the the level at which you, know, you first realize that number was derived. You go to your doctor and your level is is seven. She or he is going to say, "Well, you're in the normal range. Everything's cool." But recognize that number was derived because it's really at around seven that 
uh, uric acid starts to crystallize in the blood, precipitate out. So it really is completely unrelated to the metabolic risks of uric acid. They begin at 5.5. So that becomes a more optimal kind of recommendation, 5.5 or below. And you know, again, um, it's important to to get that measurement. Sometimes, you know, the easiest thing to do to get your uric acid levels call your doctor's office because you probably had it last year. You know, a lot of people aren't getting physicals right now, not wanting to go to a doctor's office. But in the day when you got your blood work done every year, uric acid is almost always included on that comprehensive twenty uh, unit uh, panel, or mm. by a home a monitor. And you're not going to know uh, until you check. Uh, you know, there's this notion of, well, bury your head in the sand, you're not going to know. I, I think people who are watching your podcast are the kind of people, the avids, uh, who yeah. really want to know this stuff and are going to measure their uric acid, then ask themselves, you know, how much fructose am I consuming? Am I eating a lot of high purine related foods like the organ meats, for example? How much alcohol am I consuming? And, you know, as it relates to alcohol, some choices are better than others, certainly beer, the worst because it contains purines from the brewer's yeast as well as the alcohol. So now we understand where the beer belly uh, comes from, but there are some great offsets. So um, even quercetin, for example, that, you know, it's getting a lot of press lately, rightfully so. It is in, uh, reduces inflammation, reduces free radicals. It uh, stimulates what's called AMP kinase, which has a good uh, outflow in terms of our metabolism. And guess what? Quercetin dramatically lowers uric acid. It targets the very same enzyme that the pharmaceutical uh, uh, entities target that treat gout, an enzyme in, involved in uric acid production. So quercetin, 500 milligrams a day. Luteolin, another uh, bioflavonoid, 100 milligrams per day. These are powerful mm -hmm. interventions, no prescription needed that can really bring about a significant lowering of uric acid. Are you going to feel better? I don't think so. Uh, are you going to reduce your risk for metabolic issues? I believe 100%. So it's one of those things that you kind of have to take it on faith. You know, you don't, you didn't feel your coronary arteries narrowing until you walked yeah. around that corner, had that heart attack. You know, the first sign of coronary artery disease, to get back to that, uh, in people uh, is death. <laughs> All of a sudden you're dead and <laughs> yeah. um, I wish I would have yeah. known, right? Uh, in 50%. So, uh, so there's, we've got to look at what the science is telling us and be, and be proactive and be, as you said, you know, our, uh, regain our agency. That's, uh, it's so well, uh, so well said. Yeah, thank you. Would you recommend medications like uh, I believe that I've read about uh, allopurinol um, as being an inhibitor of that particular enzyme along the, the metabolic pathway of uric acid? Um, or would you uh, recommend lifestyle changes or, or potentially a combination of both? I think we can really nail it with lifestyle. And yeah. truthfully, um, luteolin is toe-to-toe -toe in its efficacy with allopurinol, uh, the, the mainstay uric acid-lowering drug used for gout. Um, time for, I guess, the disclaimer that, you know, this is not medical advice to seek the care of your healthcare provider. Uh, but uh, I, I will say that in Japan, for example, they are treating hypertension, high blood pressure by using uric acid-lowering medications, allopurinol, 
specifically. So, uh, you know, it, the effect of lowering uric acid, I think, is pretty profound, not just for high blood pressure, but for uh, weight gain uh, and certainly for blood sugar regulation. So I think we're going to see uh, the expanded use of allopurinol, A, and B, you know, more interest in just the generic lowering of uric acid through the lifestyle modifications that we are discussing. Yeah. So as we've discussed, uric acid is made endogenously, but it seems to be highly associated with three different kinds of food categories, I, I suppose, for lack of a better terminology or ta taxonomy. And we've talked about them, fructose, alcohol, and purines, but maybe we could spend a few minutes kind of unpacking those a little bit further because you when you say fructose, people might be thinking fruit, I, wait a minute, can I eat fruit or, or not? And, you know, obviously there's so much confusion you bet. out and, there and about I, what I can I eat would and say what I that can't. <laughs> if there's any one question in any interview that I do that, uh, that is, uh, characterizes them and it is the fruit question. And so yeah. an apple a day keeps the doctor away. Five apples a day, the doctor you will pay. Meaning that have the apple or two a day. Uh, fruit consumption generally is actually associated with a lower uric acid level. Why so? First, fruit isn't generally that high in fructose. When we talk about these animals that need to eat a lot of uh, fruit prior to hibernation. Uh, you know, they're eating. Uh, they're they're just you know massive amount twenty thousand calories a day of fruit uh, of fructose in in the case of the bear. But having said that, uh, when we eat fruit, we're not suddenly challenging our livers with this massive onslaught of fructose because of the presence of fiber when you eat the apple. And in the skin of the apple, for example, are the bioflavonoids that work like the drug, like allopurinol and help reduce uric acid production. And finally, there's vitamin C that actually stimulates uric acid excretion. So there's three things working in your favor with eating fruit. Could you overdo it and eat a lot of fruit? Yes, you could. Uh, but fruit is definitely on the table. Similarly, foods that have a lot of concentrated cells, because there's DNA and RNA in the cells, will create purines. And that's also uh, one of the inputs to uric acid production. So hypercellular foods like the organ meats and sardines and anchovies and shellfish, for example, and even certain vegetables like the cruciferous vegetables have a lot of purines. The meats will raise uric acid. Maybe it's not a lot for some people. That's why you check your levels. But it turns out that the vegetables, similarly to uh, similar to the the fruits, don't raise uric acid. And higher vegetable consumption, even of the ones that are high in purines, is associated with lower uric acid. Again fiber, again, vitamin C, and again, even higher levels of these bioflavonoids like quercetin and luteolin that actually act as does the drug to inhibit uric acid production. Now, the third category is alcohol, which is metabolized in exactly the same way as fructose and becomes uric acid. But interestingly, uh, Third example here, uh, that alcohol it really depends on the context. Red wine contains, again, bioflavonoids. And it turns out that in women more than men, uh, consumption of wine, mod, uh, you know, in, in moderate amounts, uh, is actually associated with a lower uric acid level. Not so much in men, it's pretty well neutral. Uh, beer, I mentioned earlier, both alcohol and purines is a pretty robust 
uh, enhancer of uric acid uh, gen genesis and as such therefore the downstream manifestation being that beer belly. So, you know, it's good to unpack each of these categories and I'm glad you you took us to that place because it's not as clear cut as you might think. So fructose in the context of fruit juice is a big issue. It's a huge issue. Yeah. It's associated with uh, shrinkage of the, the brain's memory center, the hippocampus, for example, associated with increased risk of Alzheimer's disease. And why might that be? You know, there's a lot of mechanisms involved here. Uh, it's a sudden onslaught of fructose into the liver, exceeding its ability of four to five uh, grams uh, to process it. And as such, we get these downstream issues. And then, you know, the, the uric acid play you know, higher levels of uric acid being associated with a dramatic increased risk of dementia, specifically Alzheimer's, vascular dementia, mixed dementia as well. So again, uh, context I think is really important. You know, to get to the alcohol issue during this time, the middle Miocene period, when our primates were having a tough time finding food, they would be forced to eat even the food that was rotting on the ground. Mm -hmm. The reason that's interesting yeah. is because when food rots, the fruit rot, what rots on the ground, it ferments the sugar, doesn't it? And creates alcohol. So about 10 million years ago, our primate ancestors developed a 40-fold increased ability to metabolize alcohol. So they were able, as a survival mechanism, to eat that rotting fruit on the ground, which was probably a good choice, you know, because of all the uh, the nurturing of the gut bacteria from that rotting fruit, as well as their ability to now metabolize the alcohol. That is so interesting. So as it pertains specifically to fructose, it sounds like the big villains in that category are, you know, fruit juices, like big cups of lemonade or orange juice, et cetera. But then also soda and any processed food that contains what we know as processed sugars like high fructose corn syrup, which seems to be prevalent in just about everything in the middle aisles of the grocery store. Uh, 60 to so. 70% of our grocery store items that carry a barcode <clears throat> have added sweetener. And as you say, by and large, those are high fructose corn syrup or derivatives therefrom. Yeah. And of course... You know, a lot of this is derived from, you know, GMO corn that is subsidized by our government through the farm bill. And, you know, then you, you get into all sorts of uh, issues around, um, you know, misaligned incentives between big ag and big food and government and all this kind of stuff. So, you know, of course, this is this is another topic that well, we could Well, you know what? Let, yeah. Let's just go there for a moment. What the heck? Okay. Um, sure. <laughs> there's, there's no, it's not written in stone that we have to stay directly on topic today because- uh, Absolutely not. <laughs> it, it brings up a very interesting consideration that yes, we subsidize the growth of corn to a tune of $500 billion a year and a, and a reasonable amount of that corn. Yes, it's used for cattle. Yes, uh, people eat it, but you know, not an insignificant amount, a significant amount goes to the production of high fructose corn syrup, right? So we're subsidizing this a production of, of this chemical that is leading to uh, our, you know, our declining health, our declining lifespan that happened before COVID that is bankrupting uh, you know, our medical expenditure uh, budgets 
So it, 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 in that regard, it, it doesn't make a lot of sense. But you, know, you mentioned the fact that this corn is GMO. By and large, you're correct. Why do we need genetically modified, why do we need genetically by and large any crop Pretty much, it's to allow the use of glyphosate, the use of an herbicide, so that the the GMO crop, whatever it may be, is is able to grow, even though we're spraying that crop and importantly the soil around it with something to kill off the weeds or anything else that wanted to wanted to grow, and we're, we just don't want to see that. So what does that do? I mean, what is that doing to the soil? It's sterilizing the soil because yes, it kills bacteria. We were told it didn't, but it does. In fact, glyphosate originally was developed as an antibiotic as it was patented because it does affect the shikimate pathway in bacteria and it kills them. What happens when we eat those foods containing this antibiotic? We're killing off bacteria within our gut. Uh, that's the work of Dr. Stephanie Seneff at uh, MIT. So, you know, this all converges, doesn't it, on ill health? And you mentioned permeability of the gut. But surefire way is to alter the gut bacteria. Well, what does that end up leading us to? Yet another mechanism of gut permeability leading us back to inflammation, the cornerstone of the very diseases that we want to avoid. So having said that, you know, again, it, it shines a light on the big picture, but you know, for our, reining it back uh, into where we are today, just this really seminal work on uric acid as being this danger signal for our bodies to create more inflammation, to create more blood sugar, uh, to create more body fat, and uh, it's it's a it's a it's a very very empowering a bit of information. And you know, we're twenty years into it now, and frankly. Uh, other countries are a, a step ahead of the old US of A on this. Uh, as I mentioned, you know, Japan is actually treating people with what is called what is called hyperuricemia, elevated mm -hmm. uric acid. Uh, we have in this country a, a, a nomenclature of uh, something called asymptomatic hyperuricemia. And that means that you have elevated uric acid, but you don't have gout or kidney stones. So it's asymptomatic. And that's what people with elevated uric acid are told that they have. Well, you have a high uric acid, but you don't have gout, so don't worry about it. That's not going to work anymore. Sorry. Yeah, well, I, I think we will have to schedule another session to talk about uh, glyphosate and chemical herbicides and the importance of reimagining our agricultural system and regenerative farming. You bet. I mean... I could uh, I've talked a lot about glyphosate on this show, as as many listeners will know. But um, it is uh, it is detrimental in in, uh, in so many effects and impacts um, from key as a chelator and also as an inflammatory agent in our gut and potentially even in our endothelium that can you know lead to this. Uh, buildup of LDL particles uh, in our vascular system, you know, then of course, then we blame the firemen for showing up at the fire. That's right. But instead of actually examining the root cause, um, and uh, we just examine the symptoms and, and, and blame these plaques, but what is, what are the sources of the inflammation in the first place? Right. And of course, we can point our finger in a whole variety of, of different places, including uric acid, but glyphosate is certainly uh, among the villains in this caper. 
So yeah, I'm, I'm know, glad you took us there. <laughs> yeah. Well, a thought came to mind and sort of the free association, which now that you and I know each other, uh, first yeah. I wanted to say you're doing good. You're doing great work. I mean, you know, that you're bringing this, all these things to the attention of your listeners and viewers. It's, it's a home run and I, I praise you for it. So thank you. Thank you. Um, getting back to the, the plaque buildup, I mean, it all worked. There's this collection of cholesterol and we have a drug to lower cholesterol problem solved, you know, put oh, everybody yeah. on statin drugs and end of story. It, well, great. It didn't work, but it's still what we're going to do. You know, we see that in Alzheimer's. There's, you know, this drug, uh, Aricept, Dunepazil, that's used because it inhibits an enzyme that breaks down acetylcholine because we know that there are lower levels of acetylcholine in the brain of an Alzheimer's patient. If we could create a drug that would raise that, then, hey, home run. And that's the main, main go-to drug to treat Alzheimer's. Well, guess what? It does not work. As a matter of fact, according to Dr. Richard Kennedy, as published in the Journal of the American Medical Association Network online uh, publication, people who are taking that drug actually decline cognitively more rapidly. And yet that's the home run best-selling so-called Alzheimer's drug of the day. So it's, uh, it's very interesting that we look at how people get into understanding these mechanisms and the pathophysiology, but how it's so nurtured by the fact that, you know, these are blockbuster drugs that have been, the way has been paved for them. And, you know, I'm not anti-drug, believe me, you know, we use a lot of medications, they're very effective, but you asked me earlier, I mean, uh, do we go for the drug or do we do the lifestyle choices first? And you know, the latter certainly resonates for me. Yeah, I'm with you. And and I share your, your same, well, I, I, I'm a Buddhist, so I would call it the, the middle path where, you know, I can see the, the, the benefits of uh, pharmacology. I mean, certainly I'm fascinated by this new immunotherapy as it pertains to cancer with, uh, all of this research being done on checkpoint inhibitors, et cetera. And, you know, these can really alleviate a lot of pain and suffering. Um, but when we get into this, uh, this pattern of, well, here, you know, you're going to take a statin every single day for the rest of your life. And at the same time, we're going to ignore the root causes of the inflammation in your system. Well, that is just not a system that is looking out for anybody's health. Uh, that is a system that is moored to capitalism and profit. And again, I don't want to uh, excoriate pharma here because, you know, enough people do that. And like I said, you know, there's a lot of really well-intentioned, good-hearted, hardworking scientists wearing real white coats with real letters after their name, you know, and, um, and I, you know, I worry about the erosion of trust in institutions like science and medical science, particularly, but you bet, but at the same time, then, you know, then, you know, that institution needs to really put its best foot forward. And um, as well, I mean, yeah. I think these days we're certainly seeing that on full display for all. 
And uh, and I think you have to recognize that there is uh, uh, arguments on many sides of these issues, and that you know it, it kind of gets back to our talk a while back of this notion of of uh, cognitive empathy to be able to to really experience and be with uh, uh, alternative uh, points of view that may not necessarily resonate with you know your operating operating paradigm. And we lose that as we, with higher levels of inflammation in our bodies, we lose that connection to that prefrontal cortex and are unable then uh, to participate in this sense of being able to vet and participate in other people's frames of reference. And we're, we're all the worse for that. We're, we're missing out. And, you know, as it is with, you know, what we're talking about now, this whole uric acid idea, uh, it, is, it will be greeted with skepticism. And that's a good thing. I mean, I'm really hoping that it is because it's new and it's novel. And you know, the mission for me is not to be outside the box. The mission is to make the box bigger so that we become more inclusive of these ideas. Uh, you know, I wrote Grain Brain in 2013. And when I wrote that, those ideas about sugar and carbohydrates being uh, uh, will affect the brain, I mean, come on. But, you know, 400 peer-reviewed references in that book, and finally people started to get the idea that, hey, maybe there is a reason that if you're a type 2 diabetic, your risk of Alzheimer's is increased fourfold. So, it, you know, it taking a lot of people kicking and screaming to a new place that, you know, your education shouldn't stop. Uh, you don't check your education at the door when you leave medical school. It needs to continue, and you have to be develop a level of comfort with being wrong uh, and with adopting new ideas. I mean, I'm, I'm criticized uh, a lot and I, I'm grateful for that. Believe me, I'm grateful for that because what we talk about is a little bit challenging to the, the widely held doctrines that uric acid is related to gout, end of story, for example. There was a time in my life uh, when I said, you know, you, it's a really good idea to be on a low fat diet because we look at the data. Well, now we know where that data came from and how unfortunate that was because, you know, the re response was no fat will then have more carbs and look, look where that took us. So, you know, it's, it's about being uh, able to be resilient and uh, able to adopt new ideas based upon, as you say, what the science is revealing. And that may change, I'm sure, and hope it will change uh, in years to come. And we're going to be open to that. Yeah. Well, I, I appreciate that you underscore this notion of humility or the willingness to be wrong uh, in service of the greater good, because this is how the world uh, and, and progress moves forward or, or inches along the arc of the moral universe, if you will. You know, um, the, uh, you know, Newtonian physics became Einstein and obviously the world was flat and Galileo came around and there was miasma theory and then Pasteur came around and there was germ theory. And, and you know, we need to be able to be flexible, to be wrong and, and accept you know, new ideas and hypothesize around them and then leverage um, science's great enduring method um to uh to chip away at what is true and uh yeah and, and, just, and to and to be open to the ideas of others allows novelty to occur and uh allows development of novel ideas and approaches and certainly explanations so 
yeah. I'm all in. And, you know, that I've, I've been very motivated by that over the years. And, and again, I, I think that it's great to be, to be, I, to get excited. I, and you, maybe you can see I'm excited about it, but to be yeah. excited about a new tool in the toolbox, because we need uh, uh, as many tools as we can offer people to bring to bear, to maintain health. You know, we talk about our uh, America's healthcare system. It has nothing to do with health. It has everything to do with illness. Once you're in trouble, what can we offer you for your heart disease or whatever it may yeah. be? You know, I, I think that the Yellow Emperor, fourth century BC, stated that prevention is the ultimate principle of wisdom. To cure a disease after it has manifest is like digging a well when one feels thirsty or forging weapons when the war has already begun. And you know, mm. that's where we are. We're just in this process of continuing to watch these things evolve and present themselves. And then we try to forge these weapons. And we know that, you know, to a very significant degree, some of our most challenging issues are preventable. That Alzheimer's disease is by and large a preventable disease now affecting 6 million Americans with that number predicted to triple by 2050. Mm. And that's, wow. that's worrisome. I mean, uh, you know, as a professional dealing with this problem, it's heart wrenching. Uh, as a as a person whose father died of Alzheimer's, it was heart wrenching, and it doesn't have to be. So, uh, you know, yeah. some people see things as they are and ask why. Others see things as they could be and ask why not. Right. So that's the mission, and uh, with that, we welcome uh, a new player, uric acid, and. Uh, it's going to be interesting to see where this goes, but what we're watching happen right now to people who are gaining control of their uric acid, I think is really uh, very, very encouraging. Fantastic. So I just want to uh, wrap up with one more element of your book, Drop Acid. And uh, I too wish that there was not a $4 trillion sick care industry and a, a $1 trillion food industry. I would, I, I wish there was the other way around, that we had a $4 trillion organic, delicious, plant-based food industry and a, and a much smaller um, pharmaceutical industry. Um, but you address diet uh, head-on um, in the book and uh, with a variety of, of recipes uh, that um, relate to what you call the love diet. So I wonder if you could just elaborate a little bit on that component uh, of the book, because I, I think that it is really helpful for people to have actionable praxis um, in their life. Uh, it's one thing to understand mechanism, which is really important. And I, I think they actually go hand in hand because once you actually understand the mechanisms of your physiology, your behavior follows along. And but now is, you, it's so true because I mean, then you're bringing the prefrontal cortex back online and then able to continue and make better decisions. I'll get to that in just a moment, but a thought came to mind as you were talking about the, the monies spent on food uh, versus healthcare. And to that end, uh, I and another Dr. Casey uh, Means uh, wrote a an op-ed in MedPage Today, which was an open letter to President Biden in February, uh, February 21st of uh, 2021 in which we call attention to exactly what you just described, this notion of, you know, it's all about the generating funds for these uh, entities, 
the recommendation for another five years from the USDA is that 10% of our calories is still okay if it comes from sugar. There's no science that supported that decision. The only support for that decision came from industry, came from corn, for example, saying that we should eat more sugar. It's not good for us. Our recommendation in this open letter uh, was 6% at most, and even that is, uh, is being, I think, unfortunately generous. Uh, there is no requirement in the human diet to eat sugar at all. Zip. Uh, we manufacture sugar, we can break down complex carbohydrates, et cetera. So we wrote this letter to President Biden, knowing full well, however, that these changes to the USDA recommendations uh, only take place every five years, but uh, with, we, you can always hope. Now, the love diet, the lower uric value diet. This is a diet, obviously, that's going to dramatically limit free fructose or basically eliminate free fructose and mostly uh, focuses on a, a plant-based approach. There are some uh, non-plant-based recipes, but really emphasis on plant-based here from the grain brain guy um, mm -hmm. that are designed to really rein in the production of uric acid, lower in purines, higher in those vegetables and some of the all-star vegetables that contain things like quercetin and luteolin, uh, various in, uh, uh, interspersed uh, uh, components to these recipes that have been demonstrated to actually lower uric acid, like tart cherries, for example. So it's a diet, uh, and we provide the recipes that um, really allows people to eat great, wonderful, nutrient-dense foods that are certainly focused on being more plant-based and that are going to lower uric acid. Uh, to that, we add a couple of supplements like quercetin and luteolin, DHA, vitamin C, and chlorella. Um, but uh, beyond that, uh, you know, the idea of being able to lower your own uric acid and to regain agency, like you talked about, by checking your uric acid level at home, you can go online and buy a uric acid monitor right now and know what your uric acid is. So um, you know, these are the tools and uh, it's the empowering part because I think it's gonna make its way to the mainstream clinic sooner than later, but when I say sooner, it'll be years. And uh, I, I just cannot imagine people waiting. Uh, here we know this information today and it's really going to be, uh, I think, a game changer. And I think we're going to see that, uh, again, uric acid is going to be lined up as the metabolic uh, marker with the metabolic markers like blood pressure, body weight, glucose, insulin, um, uh, things like uh, lipids, uh, triglycerides. I think it's going to be right in that group. And, uh, you, you know, it, it, we're early in the game. So there you go. Yeah. Well, I'm hopeful that, you know, we can start to to read those markers just on with our CGM, with our continuous glucose monitor. Uh, it, you know, that it, it seems as if the technology is there. It's just the uh, the execution needs to to be there. But, you know, I just want to uh, to really thank you for your time today, but really more generally for your work. Oh, goodness. Um, thank you. I mean, you're commitment to making us healthier, uh, of course, is integral, but it's not just physiological health because when you have diabetes, for example, and you're suffering from some of the downstream impacts, whether that's uh, glaucoma or neuropathy, et cetera, 
it's hard to be a compassionate, kind person. It's hard to be in your prefrontal cortex and reason and apply rational thought because you're suffering and and you're sick. Um, so the tools that you are providing are go beyond, well beyond the physiological. And I think that they're absolutely integral in helping us mend uh, our relationships and become kinder and more compassionate people. So hats off. Well, I'm, I'm uh, honored to hear those words from you. And I, I have to admit, you and I, for your audience, have never met before. I'm yeah. feeling... Uh, uh, I'm feeling just really uh, fulfilled having met you today and spent time with and spending time with you. And I know it's not the last time. Yeah, likewise. All right, David, Drop Acids is coming out on February 15th. That's right. 2022. One so, day after uh, Valentine's Day. <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> well, I will be featuring it here and I'm sure it's available for pre-order through the, the normal um, book repositories. Uh, but uh, right. I really encourage everyone to be on the front edge uh, of this discussion because I guarantee it will it's going to be a blossoming discussion for for years so again David Perlmutter thank you thank you for having me Thanks a lot for listening to my conversation with Dr. David Perlmutter. Be sure to check out his new book, Drop Acid, and keep abreast of his work at drperlmutter.com. Now, if you enjoy this show, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts and leave us a review. If you're a regular listener, you know how much effort goes into the creation of this show, and we really do our best to keep sponsors to a minimum. This is not one of those shows where I ramble on for the first 15 minutes about ads. So if you're looking for a way to support our efforts, the best way to do that is to subscribe to Commune. You'll access more than 100 courses featuring the world's top authors and thought leaders, and you can check it out for 14 days for free at onecommune.com slash trial. Of course, feel free to reach out to me directly anytime for any reason at jeffk at onecommune.com. I'd like to thank the folks that make this show possible, including Jake Laub, Megan Stone, Ruby Foster, Emma Fretz, Silvana Alcala, and Ryan Tillotson. That's all from the Commune for this week. My name is Jeff Krasnow, and I am here for you. <laughs>